Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Dr. Hansen will be uh, introducing today's Grand Round speaker. Dr. Hansen. Thank you. Good morning. We have three speakers this morning, and I'm really excited um, to hear. They'll be speaking on a very important topic of anti-vaccine rhetoric and the threat to routine childhood immunization. Um, our first speaker will be Dr. Rekha Lakshmanan, or Rekha Lakshmanan, who's the Chief Strategy Officer of the Immunization Partnership. It's a nonprofit organization in Texas. She's responsible for developing, monitoring, and supporting the execution of the organization's strategic plan, along with identifying and executing growth opportunities. She'll be joined by Dr. Lindy McGee, a general pediatrician from Pasadena, Texas, who is an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine and a member of the Academic General Pediatrics Division at Texas Children's Hospital. Her interest in cancer prevention and adolescent population led her to an interest in increasing HPV vaccine rates, and she served on the board of directors for the Immunization Partnership since 2009. Um, and we will also be hearing from uh, Jason Sabo, who is the founder of the Frontera Strategy and works as a political strategist, philanthropy advisor, and coalition builder for multiple states. This the, he focuses his work on public health education, human services, and foundation and nonprofit issues. Jason specializes in assisting organizations and philanthropists to develop advocacy strategies for challenging fiscal and political circumstances. So join me in welcoming our speakers, and I will go ahead and hand it over. Thank you, and good morning, everybody. Um, first, I'll just say um, I am humbled uh, to, to be called a doctor, but just in, in, in full transparency, um, um, I am not an MD, but will just consider myself to be an, an honorary doctorate today. Um, but thank you so much for the opportunity to, to be on this call. We are here to talk to you today about an agenda which threatens the health of all of us, the anti-vaccine agenda. Many of you may not realize that Texas is considered the epicenter of the organized and mobilized anti-vaccine political movement. We're not talking here about your average patient who may be vaccine hesitant or who has questions about vaccines but, and wanna hear you know, their healthcare, healthcare provider's advice regarding vaccines. We're talking about an organized political movement whose goal is to define for us what counts as informed consent and work towards ending all routine childhood uh, school requirements. This is just our disclosure slide. Um, part of my programmatic and past work has been supported by various companies. Dr. McGee and Jason do not have anything to disclose and Dr. McGee is speaking on her own behalf and not on behalf of the institutions where she works. Today's discussion covers three areas. We will talk about the rise in power of the anti-vaccine movement nationally in our state and in our state. We'll walk through misinformation talking points used by this movement as they try to influence legislation so that you know how to talk to your patients, friends, and families about these issues. Finally, we'll talk about how you can be part of spreading accurate vaccine information so we can maintain evidence-based sound immunization policy. 
I want to emphasize we're here this morning to talk about the threat to all routine childhood immunizations, not about the COVID vaccine. Um, that is a separate discussion, which can um, take up um, quite a bit of, of time. This movement became more vocal and energized with the introduction of COVID vaccine, but at the end of the day, they're going after all vaccines. So I wanna do a little bit of a quick uh, history review. For as long as there has been a vaccine movement, there has been an anti-vaccine movement. There are always going to be people who distrust experts and who believe that getting a disease naturally is better than preventing it through vaccination. And we can't forget that getting an injection is scary and it hurts. And that vaccines aren't given to sick, uh, to sick people to make them feel better. We give them to well people and sometimes it makes them feel bad for a few days. When vaccines are working well, nothing happens. People don't get sick. So it's easy to be skeptical of vaccines. We often say that vaccines are a victim of their own success. It's a perception we are always fighting against. Mass vaccination campaigns started in Britain in 1853 when vaccination for smallpox was required for all small children. If you remember, the original vaccine was derived by Edward Jenner from the cowpox virus. And here in this picture, you'll see anti-vaccine propaganda at that time where people are shown taking vaccines and cows growing out of their skin. They also worried that the government was experimenting on them by requiring vaccines and had concerns about toxins entering the body. Does that all sound familiar? We saw this resistance throughout the 1800s as anti-vaccine sentiment made its way across the pond to the U.S. Successive smallpox outbreaks spurred vaccination mandates, which then spurred anti-vaccine backlash. This push and pull culminated where many things do in the U.S., at the Supreme Court. In the midst of an outbreak, Massachusetts enacted a law requiring smallpox vaccination of all adults over 21, with a $5 fine for those who did not comply. And if you think about it in today's terms, that's about $160. Of course, medical exemptions were allowed with a physician's note. However, a man named Henning Jacobson objected to this mandate and sued the state. His case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in the end, the court ruled in favor of the state. The opinion of the Supreme Court was that a state may enact a compulsory vaccination law since the legislature has the discretion to decide whether vaccination is the best way to prevent smallpox and protect public health. The justices reasoned that individual liberty does not allow people to take actions which disregard the harm that they could cause others. Jacobson versus Massachusetts is now considered established precedent and has been cited recently in many rulings related to the pandemic and continues to be upheld. Although the anti-vaccine movement started in the 1800s, it really ramped up the last 50 years. The modern anti-vaccine movement began in the 1980s with concern around neurological outcomes from the DPT vaccine and the release of a documentary titled DPT, Vaccine Roulette. Lawsuits ensued, and this is when the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program was formed. Fast forward to 1998, uh, Andrew Wakefield published a study of 12 children which purported to find a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. This study was later to be found fraudulent and was redacted, but at that point the ship had sailed and we had celebrities like Jenny McCarthy getting on Oprah to say that vaccines caused her son's autism. 
Just one thing to note, uh, after he lost his medical license in the UK, Wakefield um, ended up moving to Austin, which is uh, part of the reason why the anti-vaccine movement is centered here. The anti-vaccine rhetoric shifted again in Texas in 2015, and that was after a measles outbreak at Disneyland and California removed non-medical exemptions for school entry. There was a bill to duplicate this in Texas, and in response, a, a group formed and got together and created a very vocal anti-vaccine political action committee. Whereas prior vaccine skeptics in Texas were talking about concerns like toxins and vaccines, this group started to couch it with terms like parental rights and individual liberty and medical freedom. And these are much more effective terms at the state legislature. Of course, uh, you know this type of messaging found fertile, gr fertile feeding ground during the pandemic when the anti-vaccine groups joined with anti-mask groups at the beginning of the pandemic. And then of course found new supporters who were opposed to COVID-19 vaccine requirements. Despite the rise in this movement, it's really important to distinguish who the anti-vaccine movement is and who they are not. Uh, people in this movement tend to elevate individual rights over the good of public health or the right of children to be free from exposure to preventable communicable diseases at school. You'll often hear things like, well, if you're vaccinated, why do you care if I'm vaccinated? There's no acknowledgement of the rights of immune compromised children or people who cannot be vaccinated because of medical conditions. They work hard to convince other people not to vaccinate. They are not just people who care about parents' rights, as in the example above. They show no concern for the rights of people to be free from exposure to disease. They are not interested in listening to evidence. As soon as you present data to support vaccination, they'll move their grievance post to something else. A perfect example of this is with thimerosal. There was a concern that mercury was causing autism, but when we removed it from vaccines and autism rates didn't change, they moved the goalpost to say, well, it's because we give too many too soon. It will always be something. They intentionally target marginalized communities. For example, um, a few years ago, there was a measles outbreak in a Somali community in Minnesota and evidence to show that anti-vaccine activists were in those communities spreading propaganda. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, there was another measles outbreak in a Jewish Orthodox community in New York. And again, um, volumes of evidence to show that they were being, that they were being targeted. Um, these individuals and groups like to characterize themselves as underdogs when in fact they are extremely well-funded and resourced. But the most important thing to remember is that although they are very loud, they are the minority. On the other hand, um, anti-vaxxers are not those people who just need a little extra time and information to help guide their decision about vaccinating. While some parents may be hesitant and have a lot of questions, they are open to listening to their provider and the data to help them feel informed and make an educated decision. An anti-vaxxer is not a person who delays vaccines simply because they just don't have easy access to them. Finally, it's important to remember that the majority of people support and value vaccination. 
The goals of the anti-vaccine movement remain clear. Number one, they want to stoke fear, promoting doubt and discontent. They do this by using fringe medical professionals to validate their views. They want to disrupt systems like the public health infrastructure. They will frequently say they are doing it in the name of privacy. They will frequently claim that they are not anti-vaccine, just pro-parent choice. But then they do things like close down school, school, uh, school vaccine flu clinics, thereby, thereby decreasing access to parents who choose to vaccinate. They want to spread misinformation and disinformation and have found social media as the perfect tool to do this. Uh, a well-known quote attributed to Winston Churchill is, a lie travels the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. Can you imagine this quote You know, was before the internet and how much worse is it now? And as we've discussed, they want to elevate their own rights over the rights of everyone else. My right not to vaccinate is more important than your right to not be exposed to preventable contagious disease. As I said earlier, this is an extremely well-funded movement. They like to position themselves as the underdog, like they're just parents who are fighting against the money of big pharma, but that is simply not true. They have money coming in from individual donors, but they also get a lot of funding from supplement and natural remedy from the natural remedy industry. Um, this not only applies to national groups like Children's Health Defense, which is led by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and ICANN, which is the Informed Consent Action Network, led by Dell Bigtree, who also happens to be a transplant now in Texas. Um, and both of these groups saw exponential increases in donations in the upwards of millions of dollars um, in the first year of the pandemic. But all of this applies to state-based anti-vaccine um, vaccination groups as well, which has brought in thousands and thousands of dollars into their groups. <clears throat> so a well-funded movement leads to more activity and more activism. And we absolutely saw the combination of pandemic frustration and effective anti-vaccine messaging around freedom and liberty take effect last legislative session. And we have just started uh, the 2023 legislative session, and we continue to see this rhetoric. As you remember, the Texas legislature meets for about six months every other year, but during the 2021 legislative session year, Governor Abbott called three special sessions after the regular one occurring right around the time of the publicity of the COVID-19 vaccine mandates, which created an opportunity for multiple anti-vaccine bills to be filed. We saw over 60 bills um, across a variety of issues um, be filed. The great news um, was that the medical professionals joined with parent advocates, concerned citizens, the business community, community organizations to help stop all of these bad bills. This is really important context given um, the legislature has completed uh, their first week and a half of the 2023 legislative session. Um, and so we're continuing to see um, an amp up of all this rhetoric and discussion. The themes we saw in 2020, in 2021, and we're already starting to see in 2023, um, uh, is, um, is um, a few different things. Number one, um, they want to redefine and mandate informed consent discussions. They want to penalize physicians who dismiss unvaccinated patients. They want to eliminate all vaccine mandates. And if they can't do that, uh, they want to make school mandate exemptions super easy to get. And finally, they want to declare unvaccinated status as a legal protected class. 
And one thing I'll note before I turn it over to Dr. McGee, all of these themes um, we're sharing with you have already been filed in the state legislature um, this session. So I'll turn it over to Dr. McGee to go into more detail about these themes. Thank you, Rekha. So in the last part of the presentation, I mean, in this next part, I want to go over the themes from the last slide in more detail so you know how to talk to your patients, family, and friends about these issues, which are going to become more publicized as the anti-vaccine movement gears up um, throughout this next legislative session. They are going to see these talking points on social media and ask you about them. I cannot emphasize enough that when I talk about anti-vaxxers, I am not talking about your average patient who just has questions. I am not talking about parents who get most vaccines but refuse the COVID vaccine. When I say anti-vaxxer, I'm talking about the well-organized, well-funded, politically active anti-vaccine movement. I stress this because when we've given this lecture before, we'll get comments back that we're being mean to parents who just have questions. And I went into general pediatrics because I love talking to parents who have questions. Um, that means they care about their kids. So, but what I don't like is that people in this well-funded anti-vaccine community are pushing misinformation and disinformation to these parents for their own gain. Remember that although they couch their language in terms like parents' rights and informed consent, the overarching goals of this anti-vaccine movement are to stoke fear, disrupt systems, spread misinformation, and to elevate the individual over the public good. One of the tactics used in bills filed in Texas and in other states is an attempt to regulate what defines informed consent when it comes to administering vaccines. We already have clearly defined informed consent for vaccines in the form of vaccine information statements released by the CDC and required to give all patients receiving vaccines in the U.S. You can see the top part of the one for the MMR vaccine here. As with any good informed consent, these statements covers risk associated with the vaccine, benefits of vaccination, who should not receive a particular vaccine, and what patients should do if they have a reaction. When the anti-vaccine movement uses the term informed consent, they're talking about adding confusing information to the consent process in order to deter providers from offering vaccines and scare patients away from vaccination. It is imperative that we do not allow a fringe group to dictate what we say to our patients. I just want to reiterate that our current method of informed consent fully follows the definition of informed consent already in state law and as endorsed by medical societies such as the AMA. Informed consent requires that patients be advised of the risks or hazards that would influence a reasonable person. It does not require us to explain the manufacturing process of every treatment or list every possible ingredient in every treatment. But this is what the anti-vaccine legislative agenda would propose. For this language that they, this is the language that the anti-vaccine political action committee, Texans for Vaccine Choice, is using for their legislative agenda priorities. This is taken straight from their website. <laughs> Before getting a vaccine, the patient or parent should be informed of all vaccine ingredients and possible side effects. This sounds reasonable, right? The issue is what do they mean by all ingredients and all side effects? For all vaccine ingredients, they're going to want us to inform patients about fetal cells and vaccine excipient lists, adding to confusion without adding to pertinent information. 
for all possible side effects, they will want us to declare things are side effects of the vaccines, which are not side effects of the vaccine. There's also been a bill filed stating that any attempt to compel or coerce an individual lawfully residing in the state into being vaccinated against COVID-19, contrary to the individual's preference, is inconsistent with the principles of informed consent. This use of the vague wording is disturbing here. If we convince someone to get the vaccine, could they come back and then say they felt compelled or coerced to do it? I've heard from some doctors in the state that this has happened to them. If this law went into effect, it has um, damages of $5,000 and court costs associated with it. One category of bills that we're seeing coming out of other states um, in which has been filed in Texas and is, is an attempt to dictate what we inform patients that we inform patients whenever fetal cells are used in the development or production of vaccines. I want you to be comfortable talking about this sensitive topic because I know you'll get questions from your patients about it if you haven't already. So why do we even use fetal cells in vaccine? It would be awesome if we could just stop and we wouldn't have to worry about this discussion at all. But as you remember from biology class, viruses need to grow in cells. So when we're making live viral vaccines, we have to use cell cultures. When Salk and Sabin were developing their polio vaccines, they used a monkey kidney cell line. It was later discovered that these cell lines were contaminated with another virus, SV40. Although simian virus 40 was found not to adversely affect humans, the decision was made to switch to human cell lines, which have many other advantages. For one, human cells can grow in human, human cell lines grow human viruses easier. Um, two, these cell lines are sterile and extensively tested for safety. And three, they can be frozen and kept indefinitely. So you do not need to harvest new cells, which we'll see is critical to the ethical argument. The cells currently used in vaccines were derived from elective pregnancy terminations in the 1960s and 1985. There are no new sources of human fetal cells used in vaccines. Vaccine manufacturing does not depend on new pregnancies being terminated. Current vaccines in the U.S. which use these cells are the J&J COVID vaccine, the rubella vaccine, varicella, hepatitis A, and some rabies vaccines. Fetal cells were used in the early stages of mRNA vaccine development, but not in their manufacturing. The Pontifical Academy for Life, representing the Catholic Church, released a statement in 2005 reaffirmed it in 2017 and reinforced it during the pandemic, declaring the acceptability of use of these vaccines. Other religious leaders and ethicists agree. This is the ethical and moral argument that the Vatican uses. It is a way to think about it for those who consider abortion to be a sin and has to do with whether there's an implied bond of moral cooperation. It is in technical ethicist language, so I wanna give you an analogy which I found to be helpful. It's why I have a picture of a road here. We can all agree that slave labor is a grave sin. If I myself am using slave labor to build a road, that is obviously a sin. Ethicists would also agree that if I'm using a road of a society which is using slave labor to build roads so that my use of the road perpetuates the system, that would also be a sin. But if I'm using a road which was built by slave labor many years ago, and the use of that road is not contributing to new use of slave labor, that is not a sin. Of course, we use fetal cells for many other reasons in medicine. All of these uses become at risk if laws like the ones that anti-vaxxers have already proposed are accepted. 
multiple medication, food flavors, and some cosmetics, research for many, many diseases, and other vaccines in development. Like I said, there's been a bill filed which will require disclosure of fetal cells for all of these reasons. It also requires disclosures if a medication, vaccine, or other medical product is derived from research using human fetal tissue, which quite honestly, these cells are used so ubiquitously in research, I'm not sure how you would even define that. Another tactic that anti-vaxxers use to redefine what informed consent entails is legislation surrounding what are known as excipient lists. Bills mandating that providers provide excipient lists at the time of administration of vaccines have been heard at prior legislative sessions and will be heard again this year. An excipient is an inert substance used as a vehicle or dilutant for the drug. They're there to make the drug more stable, bioavailable, or more acceptable, like the flavors added to liquid oral medications. In fact, about 90% of any given product is made up of excipients, not the actual pharmaceutical product. They are all safe and do not add any additional risk except in the extremely rare case of allergy. So by definition, they do not add risk. Excipients in vaccine includes preservatives, adjuvants, and reminder adjuvants are what are added to make the immune system respond to a vaccine stabilizers, and lists of residual materials used in the manufacturing process, like food products that say they were manufactured in a facility that contained peanuts. Here are the excipient lists for some commonly used vaccines. Once again, these chemicals are safe, but they look very scary. Who's not going to have questions when you say, I'm going to inject your child with formaldehyde? Having this list does not aid in informed consent because they do not pose risks or hazards that would influence a reasonable person. The point of legislation, which will require doctors to discuss excipient lists with patients, is to dissuade us from having the conversation at all because we don't have time, and to scare parents with chemical names. Can you imagine if we were required to review the excipient list for every treatment we give? Here are some examples of excipient lists for common drugs. How long would it take for consent for surgery if the anesthesiologist had to review every possible excipient and every possible drug they may inject during surgery? When the anti-vaxxers say that they want informed consent about side effects, what they mean is they want to force us to tell patients about VAERS reports. I want to remind everyone what VAERS is and what it is not. VAERS stands for the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It is a national information center for reporting of adverse events and is an amazingly effective system. It is one of the ways that we found out about rare side effects like inception with the rotavirus vaccine. Anyone can use the system to report any medical symptoms correlated with being vaccinated. Notice that I said correlated and not caused by. A report to VAERS in and of itself does not mean that the event was caused by the vaccine. For example, if you look now, there are thousands of reports of symptoms after the COVID vaccine. It is up to epidemiologists and other scientists to go through these reports and see if there are unusual signals coming out of it. For myocarditis in teen boys, absolutely. The signals showed an increased risk, which we were able to detect early on. For many other reports, no. When they look at the data, complications occur at the same background rates they always have. The limitations of VAERS are clearly stated above from their website. A report to VAERS does not mean the vaccine caused the specific event. 
Therefore, listing side effects from VAERS reports does not constitute informed consent. In fact, it is the opposite. It is uninformed. Informed consent is not the only target of anti-vaccine activists. A main priority for them is to make exemptions easier to get, or even better, to remove all vaccine mandates so that we don't need to worry about exemptions at all. This would mean the end of all recommended vaccines for school entry, as well as the end of vaccine requirements for employment. We would 100% see a resurgence of measles and polio were that to happen. Another look from the Political Action Committee website, we must stop all mandates, is a pretty self-explanatory goal. Along with this, they're trying to take away authority from experts at the Department of State Health Services and place it in the hands of politicians instead. There's been a bill filed which would take the authority to recommend vaccines out of the Department of State Health Services and instead have the authority with the politicians in the legislature. This bill would also take away health department's ability to quarantine unvaccinated kids in the event of an outbreak of a disease like measles. Under medical privacy, they're trying to undermine the vaccine registry MTRAC. When it comes to school entry, Texas law currently allows for vaccine exemptions for reasons of conscience. To get this exemption, parents must submit a completed, signed, and notarized affidavit to the school nurse on a form provided by the state, which is valid for two years. The state does not keep a record of who has requested the form. This is important because one of the arguments that is made is that it's against medical privacy to have to request a form from the state. Parents can go to this website, enter in the information, and they'll be mailed a watermarked form to be notarized. So it does take some effort and planning on the part of the parent, which is appropriate as this is not a decision which should be made lightly or done for expediency. The anti-vaccine groups keep filing legislation which would make this process easier, such as just having a form for parents can sign and email in. There was a great study which compared state vaccine exemption procedures and found conclusively that states with simpler immunization exemption procedures had non-medical exemption rates that were more than twice as high. The bottom line is that it needs to be at least as difficult to obtain a vaccine exemption as it is to get a child vaccinated. But as I said earlier, this season, their goal is not just to make exemption process easier. As shown in this email, the goal is to get rid of all vaccine mandates entirely, so they wouldn't have to worry about getting an exemption at all. This includes vaccine requirements for school, college, and work. We've also seen bills filed, which would interfere with office vaccine policies. These bills would discontinue state funding, so Medicaid and CHIP, to practices who choose to have a policy to dismiss patients who refuse vaccines. This would be an obvious encroachment of government into the ability of physicians to practice in the best way for their patients and their practices. As a reminder, after much debate in 2016, the AAP released a statement supporting the right of pediatricians to dismiss families who refuse vaccinations in some circumstances. The proposed legislation would affect that right. If you have not read this um, AAP report, Countering Vaccine Hesitancy, it was written in 2016, so it's getting a little old, but it's still really, really good. It has great information in it. I highly recommend reading it. I say the most ridiculous and what I consider the scariest tactic that the anti-vaxxers use for last. They want to include unvaccinated people as a legal protected class. If this were to happen, 
this would end any vaccine requirement for anything under any circumstances everywhere and anywhere. If you're a member of a protected class as defined by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, it means that you're protected from discrimination on the basis of that class from employment, education, and access to public amenities, including shops, restaurants, and hotels. You can see the current protected classes here, race, color, religion, sex, national origin, age, and sorry folks, 40 is considered old, um, disability, and genetic misinformation. If unvaccinated status was added to that protected class, it would mean the end of all school mandates, including for private schools, which are now allowed to not allow exemptions, the end of all employer mandates, including in healthcare settings, and the end of public health measures, which would be needed to contain future disease outbreaks. So if there was a measles outbreak in school because there were no more school vaccine requirements, the health department would also not be able to quarantine unvaccinated kids, and the outbreak would become even worse. Yikes. Now that I've covered the misinformation and tactics the anti-vaccine movement is using and how to talk to individual patients about these issues, I want to hand it over to Jason Sabo to talk to you about what you can do to educate the public and legislatures so you can help stop anti-science bills from becoming law. Thank you so much, Dr. McGee. It's great to see everybody. Uh, my name is Jason Sabo. I live in Austin, Texas, and most of the time I live in a broom closet at the Texas legislature. But uh, every year and a half or so, they let me out of the closet, and we're in that moment right now. And uh, if you're not scared by what Dr. McGee and Reka have laid out over the course of the last 30 minutes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm visiting my parents for my mom's birthday, and my dad's been giving me shots of espresso all morning, so don't blame me if I'm the one who is a little bit aggro about the fact that you all need to get involved. Because the reality is, I've worked at the Capitol for 20 years on public health-related issues, Nobody has more respect, nobody has more credibility, nobody has more potential to actually be listened to in the political context in Texas on these very issues than you, than medical professionals. They, at the Capitol, staffers, legislators, respect and defer to the opinions of the medical community. We'll see if that holds this session as we begin to talk about vaccines, but the reality is you guys can do a lot. And I would argue that you have a responsibility to do a lot. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, let's talk about some of the rules of the road. So you understand very, very clearly, if you're going to get involved in this stuff, if you're going to get involved in changing how policies are made in Texas, how to do it, not just how to do it to be effective, but how to do it and within a way internally within your organization that is okay. And we know that uh, there are constraints that we all have in our jobs. But we also know that we're presented with a really scary moment. So there are lots of things that you can do. And here's some really simple rules. If you're going to send an email to the Capitol, don't use your don't use your work account. Use your personal account so that it's very clear that you're communicating with the legislature on your own behalf. If you're making a phone call, if you're calling a legislative office, use your mobile phone, again, to make sure that it's you that are having this communication, not the institution where you might happen to be working today. Uh, also. If you're scheduling legislative meetings, and I totally encourage you guys to do this because everybody thinks that they're going to come to the Capitol for a meeting and it's going to be really kind of confrontational. The exact opposite happens. It's like the red carpet is rolled out for you. Everyone is very nice to you. Even if they disagree with you, generally speaking, they're very nice and they want to hear what people have to say. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to go to the legislature, present yourself to the legislators as a physician citizen. 
not as someone representing a specific institution, right? You are a physician, you are a citizen, and that is just fine. You don't have to have all that institutional stuff because your perspective as that citizen physician is quite fine. And finally, if you are going to be engaging this kind of stuff, if you're going to be doing it a lot, you might want to tip off the government relations people at your institution that you're doing this, if for no other reason than they know that you're what you're up to, so that if they need help, they can ask you for assistance. Because the reality is, they do need help. And their institutions all over the state are struggling right now to have a, a say at the Capitol, and they need you to be a part of that message. Okay, next slide, please. But recognizing that many of you are public sector employees, it's important to understand that within the Texas, within Texas law, you as a public sector employee do not relinquish your free speech rights, right? You cannot speak on behalf of your, the public institution where you might be affiliated, where you might be working, but that doesn't, your employment by that public institution does not preclude you from participating at the Capitol and participating in our democracy. So that's kind of the rules of the road at the outset. Just know that there's some, just be, be smart about how you do this. And if you're a public sector employee, you're quite able to do it. Now, you know, let's talk about responsibility. Uh, Y'all could be any kind of doctor you wanted to be, right? You chose this kind of medicine for a reason. Uh, you chose this kind of medicine because you want to have a positive impact on the world. You chose this kind of medicine because you believe in the power of public health and you believe in the power of, of healthcare to change the direction of, of people's lives and children's lives, especially. I would argue, and the former Surgeon General would argue as well, that you have what he refers to as significant professional capital to inspire societies, or in this case, the Texas legislature. I urge all of you to recognize that you have this significant professional capital, but simultaneously that, okay, that's the opportunity side of the equation, right? But simultaneously, there's the responsibility side of the equation, that if you are going to be the best doctor that you can be, if you're going to fight on behalf of your patients for their basic basic, basic health, you have a responsibility to get involved with the Texas legislature. Because the reality is, you know, Dr. McGee, I think Reka said that there were 60 bills filed last session, uh, overwhelmingly 90% of them probably anti-vaccine. Uh, now we are today at almost 30 bills. Those 60 bills were filed over the course of one regular and three special sessions, 230 days. These bills so far have been filed during the first week and a half of this legislative session and a little bit pre-filed, but really ultimately they've just come in over the course of the last two or three weeks. So in two or three weeks, we are almost 50% of the way that we were over the course of, of 230 days last session. I was kind of gaming this out and my guess was that we would come close to 100 anti-vaccine bills this session. I don't know if we're gonna get there, but we'll soon see. But the reality in all of this is, is that when it comes to advocacy, y'all are covered. This is something that is seen as not just almost a, a supplemental thing for you to be doing, but in many ways, a pillar of public health, a pillar of what the American Academy of Pediatrics considers to be the, the core tenets of advocacy for pediatricians. This is absolutely in the sweet spot. Again, opportunity, responsibility. Well, let's talk about what's at stake. I mean, this kind of looks like a target because it might feel like, you know, there was a target on the vaccines because there kind of is. Uh, but the reality is 
that in many ways, I'd like you to think about this as a pond, right? Texas is a pond. Uh, and in the middle of that pond is the state legislature. And what will happen over the course of the next 120, 130-odd days now, uh, and next Tuesday, this legislative session is 10% over. So if you want to get involved, don't wait. Uh, but the reality is the legislature throws a rock into the middle of that pond, right? The little orange circle right there in the middle. Some of the rocks are small and have small ripples. Some of the rocks, like we're talking about today, could potentially be very large. Hit the middle of the pond, and then there is a ripple effect. State government hits that ripple effect first. In this case, it would be the Department of State Health Services or the Health and Human Services Commission in Texas. So that, boom, they feel that immediate ripple, and they change their policies based upon what's happening. Then there's that secondary layer of government, local government, cities, counties, school districts, uh, all these quasi-governmental entities that we have in Texas. They're that, that, that secondary ring, uh, that, or, that yellow. If you look at the—I'm looking at my colors right here. All of that out, so you've got the state government, local government, then your institutions. They're, they will, their policies will be changed based upon what's happening at the middle of the pond. And then ultimately, your practice, not institutionally, the relationship, the one-on-one -on -one relationship that you have with your patients, that is what they are going after. Make no mistake. They want to insert anti-vaccine rhetoric into the conversation that you are having confidentially with your patients. And they want to do it via government policy, which seems a little bit big brother to me, but let's be real, it's reality. I've been doing this work for a really long time. The people that, we're, that we are dealing with, who are the anti-vaccine advocates, have changed markedly. They changed before the pandemic, but since the pandemic, as Reka noted, this is flipped. The anti-vaccine groups are now aligned with a lot of other uh, kind of socially conservative issues, right? Really hard right kind of stuff. And what we're seeing now is a transformation of who the anti-vaccine advocates are. When I started this, there was literally a guy who would come and wear to the hearings wearing a tinfoil hat because of the, the gamma radiation or whatever he believes in. He was the guy who opposed vaccines. That made my life a lot easier because I would be like, okay, you agree with all these doctors or the guy with the tinfoil hat, you pick. And it was generally speaking a pretty easy choice for legislators to make. And we were able to advance good positive vaccine policy. This is the anti-vaccine movement today, which looks kind of like your neighbors especially if you live in a, sub, a Republican suburb around a large metropolitan area in Texas. This definitely looks like your neighbors because what we're seeing now are highly motivated, reasonably well-educated, reasonably well-off financially, uh, overwhelmingly white, uh, overwhelmingly Republican primary voting uh, voices. And that has, next slide please, that has a huge impact on how things play out politically. Because if you think about our legislature, we have 150 members of the House. They run in very small districts, and all of those districts were drawn to ensure that one party would win, either the Democrat or the Republican. Just so you know, of the 150 House races that were up for re-election in November with brand new maps from redistricting, mind you, one of them was competitive in November, one of 150. So basically what the legislature has done is ensure that the general election in November is completely irrelevant politically to what ultimately happens. Meaning 
that that March primary, Texas has the earliest primary of any state in the country. We're very, very early. So the people who are this ultimate incumbent protection factory, right? You make sure the primary is the only election that matters. You fast forward on the primaries to give opposition less, less time to raise money and run against you. So that means that if you eliminate the necessity of the general elections to determine the outcome, everything matters in the primaries. And these folks, the anti-vaccine folks, figured that out and have been extraordinarily aggressive in House primary races because a couple hundred votes one way or the other could be supremely impactful. So understand that they're not just looking at the legislature. They're looking at all levels of government. And something on here that I urge you to pay attention to are things like county judge, county commissioner. They're starting to run local candidates as anti-vaccine candidates. They're starting to run school board candidates as anti-vaccine candidates. This is not something that's just at the legislature, excuse the pun. This has infected Texas politics from top to bottom. And I don't see any abatement unless people like yourselves choose to say, time out, a different reality is possible. We would prefer not to have a state in which we're all willfully infecting ourselves with preventable diseases, seemingly. Next slide, please. Now, I want us to remember that with, this has been kind of a gloom and a doom sort of you know, conversation we've had today. Those two people, the, the man on the left, Nico Williams, the woman on the right, Jamie Shambaum, have a piece of legislation named after them. If any of you have sent a kid to college in Texas in the last decade or so, they had to get a meningitis vaccination to do it. It's because of these two people. Nico died. Jamie, as you saw, lost her legs from the knees down, her fingers and her palms. Uh, legislation, during this call, we've had during this last 45 minutes, I get a text message from Reka. The bill that's named after these two people, one of whom is dead, one of whom's parents came and fought for these bills, both of them on behalf of their dead son, another mom and family came on behalf of an impacted daughter. Legislation is being filed today, I believe, right, Reka, that would repeal this bill. That would basically say, sorry your kid's dead, sorry the legislature named the bill after your kid, but you know what? We're just gonna let people die from meningitis anyway. So we have learned nothing if we let this legislation pass. We are, it's, it's, it's not incumbent upon the legislature to pass bills in this case. It's incumbent upon us to stop them. It is very hard to pass bills in Texas, you know, because the constitutionally, but, but we need to get ready and we need to be ready to fight because they are coming for the very, they're coming for your practice. They're coming for you. They're coming for that one-on-one -on -one interaction you have with your patients. And whether or not, uh, whether or not we respond this session will determine, I think, in a lot of ways, the future trajectory of, the patient-doctor relationship in Texas, because this is just the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion. Next slide, please. And I'm gonna turn it back over to my friends, Dr. McGee and Reka. Great, thank you. Um, so, you know, we kind of did a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, Dr. McGee shared with you um, kind of an in-depth perspective on um, kind of the themes um, and talking points that you know you can anticipate to hear from um, from patients and, and from families. And Jason kind of did a little bit of the reality check of kind of the the climate and the temperature that we're operating in. And so I'm just going to wrap things up of what can you do? Um, and there are many, many things you can do. We won't go through everything on this slide, but you know the whole point is to engage, 
uh, where you're comfortable, um, but to take some form of engagement or action. It could be simply as just being informed, um, you know, signing up for our legislative updates. Um, we will be pushing out frequent updates as to what is happening uh, at the Capitol and how people can um, activate. Um, it's letting your colleagues know about what's happening uh, inside the Capitol as well. And, you know, the good builds and the good policies that are moving forward. And yes, believe there, there are a few, there are a few of those, but also ensuring that your colleagues and your network know, uh, you know, the, the limiting builds that threaten, um, threaten public health. It could be sending an email to a lawmaker. It could be making phone calls. Uh, it could be coming and attending um, committee hearings and sharing your expertise and your stories. And so there are a lot of different ways you can um, participate um, in citizen engagement. Uh, during Dr. McGee's uh, presentation, I did put a link um, in the chat that you can kind of learn more about what you can do. Uh, here's your QR code, um, scan it and, and see that same survey. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, as Jason said, you know, you all play a very valuable role in this process. You're extremely credible, highly respected, and we need to make sure that, you know, people who are making decisions on behalf of millions of Texans hear from you, hear from your expertise to educate them about um, the benefits and the negatives about passing um, policies. And with that, I'll conclude. And thank you so much. Um, and thank you to everyone um, at the institution for this opportunity to, to all of you this morning. Uh, thank you, uh, Rekha. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Dr. McGee, for that wonderful presentation on anti-vaccine reotic and its influence on the routine vaccination. Uh, there are quite a few comments in the chat box if you want to look at them. Uh, let's see if anybody has any questions. Dr. Hundan, you may have some questions. If I could say one thing, somebody made a comment about being the physician of the day at the Capitol. Every single day of the legislative session, there's a physician of the day, and typically they're from Austin, right? Because they're local and they're easy to get them there. That's a great idea, actually, to have have like the pro-vaccine physician core kind of assume that responsibility with those one-on-one -on -one interactions with legislators and staff. That's a, I love that idea. Yeah. I have a, a, I guess it's more of a comment. I, I, I have noticed in my interactions, I'm also a general pediatrician with families, that families are a lot less um, open to discussing why they're declining vaccines than they used to be. So I, I think it's because of the way it's been politicized. I don't know if you have any additional strategies for having that conversation, because whereas people would used to tell me what their concerns were, now I get a lot of we just don't, we just don't do that. We just don't want to, I don't want to talk about it, so. That has 100% been my experience as well and talking to the residents, that's what they're hearing too. Um, one thing is I've stopped asking, do you have any particular concerns about the vaccine? And then I, instead I say, what are your thoughts about it? What are your thoughts about the HPV vaccine? It just um, is, is a little bit less, uh, uh, direct, I guess, and, and people will sometimes talk about their thoughts and not about their concerns. 
um, if that makes sense. Um, the other thing I do is if they're not going to tell me a specific concern, and, and my guess is, quite honestly, I think people don't have specific concerns. They just know that they've seen a bunch of headlines as they scroll through social media and they want to look more into it. So maybe there's not one specific concern. What I remember whenever I'm talking to a vaccine hesitant parent is um, something called omission bias. And I think that that is a really strong cognitive bias coming into the exam room. And what omission bias is, is it tells me that doing something that could potentially cause harm is way more threatening than not doing something that could potentially cause harm. And the way that walks into the vaccine conversation is um, if I vaccinate my kid and they have a side effect, then that's my fault. But if I don't vaccinate my kid and they get the disease, well, that was mother nature's fault, not my fault. Right. Um, and I don't think people are in the front of their brains thinking it. This isn't the deep reptilian part of their brain that's going into the conversation. So whenever they don't tell me a specific concern, I'm going to address that omission bias. And the way I'm going to do it is just by reminding them they're not choosing between vaccine and nothing. They're choosing between vaccine and disease. So I'm going to remind them about the disease. So the thing I say about the flu vaccine, so obviously that's a commonly refused vaccine, is Every single time I tell the patients, you know, I asked, what are your thoughts about the flu vaccine? And they say, oh, no, 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 we just don't want it. And I'll say, you know, I strongly support this vaccine and vaccinate my own kids. The reason why this, I do this is because I'm also a doctor at Texas Children's Hospital where every year we see perfectly healthy children who get extremely sick and even die from the flu. I would hate for that to be your child and leave it at that. And I would say that one statement I have about a 50% response rate with it. Um, the thing that changed it was when I said perfectly healthy children instead of ICC children. Um, I have to say perfectly healthy children or they think that it's just other people's kids. Um, but, but I think that that, that helps me um, with that conversation. So if they don't have a specific concern, I'm going to address that omission bias. Does that make sense? Thank you. I see Dr. Herndon is, is on now. Yeah, um, and I was just going to add to my comments. Don't forget uh, that uh, we have a pediatrician, uh, Van Ramshorst, uh, from San Antonio, who runs the Medicaid uh, program in this state, uh, and using the Department of Health and and things that have it, you know, have a large funding behind them, like Medicaid, is important to uh, include in this discussion. Uh, and the Department of the State Department of Health is a good source of information about these sorts of problems. Um, of course, the Department of Health doesn't regulate, uh, uh, I don't know what to call them exactly, movements, <coughs> uh, cult phenomena, and things like that. <laughs> well, it is a cult. Let's yeah. Yeah. If I could say one thing, you're bringing up Medicaid really triggered something in my brain. The very first bill that was anti-vaccine bill that was or pro-vaccine, the very first vaccine bill that was filed this session is a bill that almost made it all the way through the House last session, which would have said if your practice accepts Medicaid, you can't fire a patient for being unvaccinated. The state is going to tell you how to run your practice and who you will and will not have as your patient base. So the, med the Medicaid component of all of this, I think, is going to be because it's, a, it's public money, right? And public yeah. providers who accept money are ultimately beholden to the public sector. That's the wedge that they're going to use because 
they have the power of the state purse to do so. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have, if, you, if you've looked at all the pre-files and, and the bills that are being filed now, for example, I just mentioned one in the chat about fetal tissue in our food products. Um, if, if we're, if we're going to move forward on this, you're going to be swamped. This legislature is just going to be a swamp of these kinds of bills from all these various different cults whether it has something to do with pediatric care or it has, it has nothing to do with medicine at all or not. And it's just unfortunate that um, the uh, leading, leading uh, Republican politicians in this state live off of culture wars. And this is just a manifestation of it. So everybody show up, get, get, put your white coat on, bring your students down there if you're in, in academics show up and, you know, for student day, do whatever you can to try to influence the legislatures. It makes a difference showing up, you know, uh, introducing the, introducing your medical students, maybe having the speaker uh, make an announcement, recognizing the students that are there. And of course, every day, the, the whoever's the doctor of the day for the House or the Senate. It is so fun to go to the Capitol. So, Isn't so it? fun. Yes. Isn't it? <laughs> There's a question am, in the chat box. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I was going to answer that. I okay. agree. I do, it, they asked about um, with vaccine discussion with parents who use as reliable sources. Um, I agree. I, I personally believe the AAP and CDC to be reliable sources of information. Um, the CDC is generally not trusted by parents who are vaccine hesitant. Um, so there's just so much misinformation about there. And quite honestly, the CDC has not done the best job of communicating about vaccines during the pandemic. Um, so the places I like is um, actually Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Vaccine Education Center has excellent handouts um, about specific topics. So if they're specifically asking about aluminum, say, and vaccines, they, they have a handout and they have a YouTube video uh, addressing that. Um, Voices for Vaccine and Vaccinate Your Family um, are two other really good sources of information. Um, Voices for Vaccine um, very much is targeted towards parents. Um, kind of run by parents, targeted by parent to parents um, in plain language and good language. So those are two other sources I really like. For COVID vaccines specifically, I love your local epidemiologist. Um, she has some great information that's really, she breaks down science well for the general public. Any other questions, comments? You know, I have uh, run into a lot of resistance from pediatricians when I tried to get them to become involved with the legislature. That's it's not, you know, you're asking somebody to leave their practice and the 35 or 40 kids that they're going to see that day in clinic. But it's also, let's face it, physicians don't trust legislatures, particularly this legislature anymore. And it's hard to get them to become involved. And I think that's another piece of the messaging that we need to work on. Yeah, and the other thing I've seen is people scared to make phone calls because they're afraid that they're going to ask them questions and they're not going to know the answer to the question yeah. um, about the bill. I will tell you, no one's going to ask you a question. Um, it is 23-year-old it is staffers taking those phone calls. 
and they are just sitting there with a little notepad and saying this many people called in favor this many people called opposed to the bill um it is so easy to make phone calls or if you're really scared of it do it after hours and leave a message um but it makes a huge difference and anti-vaccines do it so well dr mcgee is so right on five phone calls from the district to your member but you know just get five of your friends you're sitting around after work grab your neighbors everybody okay everybody let's make a phone call about this stupid bill and five calls from your neighborhood this is you guys are sitting around having a wine social hour would it would change the trajectory of legislation i'm not joking We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. Pediatrics Now is produced by Nick Mary. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.